But he was also um, a, a scientist, well-known scientist. Listen to what he said, I quote, All of these specifications seem to point to the likelihood, though we cannot be certain at this time, that hell, also called the lake of fire, will be located on some far distant star. A star, after all, is precisely that, a lake of fire. There are indeed stars and galaxies that, although burning do not give off light in the visible part of the spectrum so that they consist of both fire and cloudy darkness. One might even suggest a black hole if and when such objects are actually proven to exist would fit the description, end quote. So we don't know a lot about this place. We know it's in the outer darkness somewhere, probably somewhere in the farthest, remotest regions of the universe, a black star where these people are cast into, and they will be tormented there forever and ever. Years ago when I taught this uh, study, because I taught it as a part of a topical series, I ended with the question, and this question is for those here tonight who maybe have not really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, or anybody who's listening to my voice when this teaching is released on CD or gets on the radio. But I will ask everyone. The choice is yours. What is it going to be? The great white stone or the great white throne? You say, what are you talking about? Well, in Revelation 2 verse 17, we read, Jesus speaking, he who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. And who is he who overcomes? The person who has faith. To him who overcomes or who has true saving faith, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The idea of receiving a white stone in that culture, you know, when you would vote on someone being allowed into the club, they would vote, and they would use a white and black stone. And the basket would be passed around, you'd throw your white stone in or your black stone. White stone signified you accepted them. Black stone, they were rejected. We even have a saying to this day, uh, he was blackballed. He was rejected, right? Well, the Lord said, look, for those who come to me and believe on me, someday I'm going to give to them a white stone, which means I'm going to accept them into my kingdom forever. So it's either the great white stone or the great white throne. Of course, the great white throne 
is for all those who have rejected the truth in Christ. Let me end, and why don't you turn there, with the words by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10. And let these words kind of sink down into your mind as we read them. But Hebrews 10, starting at verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you suppose will uh, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common or basically an unclean thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the idea is apart from Christ. The writer says, look, if after you've heard the gospel and you reject it and go on living in sin, there's nothing left. There's, there's no other way by which you can be saved. I mean, all that's left is judgment, fiery indignation that's going to just, you're going to be cast into for all eternity. God is going to judge his people. And the writer there was probably the thing of the Jewish people because the Jewish people thought, hey, we're all in because we're Jews. God wouldn't send any of us to hell. We're all descendants of Abraham. We've talked about this, right? But if God is going to judge his own people that he made a covenant with, because they've refused to receive the gospel, the blood of Christ, and are still clinging to laws and, and various works that can never save them. If God is going to judge them, don't you think he will judge every person who rejects his son and counts his blood, which was shed for them, an unclean thing as they trample over it in their stampede to sin? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's right. Because if you reject Jesus as your loving Savior, he will become your righteous judge. And that will be an awful day. A horrific day. A day that is absolutely, totally avoidable. Because all a person has to do, get on their knees, confess their sins, say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, but I know you died for sinners. I know you died for me. Will you come into my heart? Will you cleanse me of my sin? Will you put your spirit within me that I could start living now for you? If a person does that, at that moment, Jesus, as their loving Savior, will take them up in his arms, will give to them eternal life. So it's a difficult subject, one that we must never joke about or take lightly. Because there is a day coming, a day of reckoning. And all those people who have refused to receive Christ, it's going to be a day that, believe me, they're not going to want to face. That's why today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Receive him now while there's still time. Revelation chapter 21. You know, last week we talked about hell. This week, joyfully, we get to talk about heaven. Do you know that 
heaven is mentioned over 500 times in the Bible, 55 times right here in Revelation. So it's a subject that really kind of dominates the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, although you would never know that based on how little we hear about heaven from the pulpit today. I mean, for a subject this large, you would think that we would have more messages about heaven than we're hearing today. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was addressing a group of young preachers many years ago, and he was addressing them because, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was that he wanted to kind of encourage them to, to talk more about heaven, but when they did talk about heaven, to act like they were enjoying themselves. Because, you know, back then, of course, preaching was taken very, very seriously, and there was no joking at all in the pulpit, and there was kind of like joy was almost looked down upon as being somewhat carnal. So they were very solemn and somber. But, but Spurgeon realized, you know, you can't be that way when you're talking about heaven. And so he said to them, look, whenever you guys preach on heaven, let your face light up with the heavenly glory. When you talk about hell, your normal face will do, he said. <laughs> But look, there's no subject that should be as dear to us or as joyful for us to talk about and share with others as the subject of heaven. Uh, Maybe you've heard this charge leveled against Christians who like to talk a lot about heaven. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know, that saying, I'm convinced, got started with the devil. Okay, I'm convinced that saying really got started with the devil. Actually, the reverse is true. If you're not heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. I mean, it's biblical to focus our thoughts on heaven. Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And the problem, I think, with far too many Christians today here in America is that they're so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. They've gotten so wrapped up in the cares of this life with all of its pleasures and passions that they don't really have a desire to think about heaven, let alone work to expand the kingdom of heaven. And that really is a tragedy. I don't think we need to talk less about heaven. I think we need to spend more time thinking about, meditating on, and sharing heaven with others. And I honestly believe, this is my conviction, that everything that we're seeing in our country today, everything from the economic problems to the, uh, you know, to the natural disasters to the threat of uh, terrorism you know, in our borders, uh, I think that God is really allowing all of it to loosen the hold the world has on us, to get us thinking more about the life to come and less about this life right here and now. The only way God can pry the world out of our fingers is to cause us to go through some tough times. I think we in America, the reason we don't like to think about having too much, we're having too much fun on earth. You go to a third world country where they have nothing, it's all they have is Jesus, they long for heaven. But heaven is our true home, and we should long for it. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about us not getting too comfortable with the world. Remember what John said in his first epistle? He said, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all these things are of the world. They are not from the Father. And this world is rapidly passing away and all the loss of it. And so we ought to be focusing on what really matters. It doesn't make any sense for us to be investing all of our time and energy and passions in things that are transitory. What the Bible says, things that are passing away, 
when we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that is incorruptible, undefiled, and will never pass away. And here we are wrapped up in the things of time, and we are neglecting the things of eternity. That's why James, and James just cut it right straight. James didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to, you know, win friends and influence people. He just told you like it was. And James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ouch. Wow. We, we ought to listen to what the Bible is telling us. We have gotten way too friendly with the world. And God is saying, it displeases me. He said, come out from her, my people. Be separate. Don't touch what is unclean. And we need to understand that. That we are in the last days especially, and now more than ever, we must not be entangled with the cares of this life because we're in the home stretch, and God wants us to be focusing on the finish line, not getting sidetracked with all kinds of other things that are not important. Well, in Revelation 21, verse 1, John begins, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As we come to Revelation 21, we have moved from time into eternity. Now remember, the millennial kingdom is not eternity. It's part of time. It's a thousand-year kingdom, right? Which signifies it's still in the realm of time. It is the final thousand years of human history tying up all the loose ends, fulfilling all the promises that God gave to Israel about a a Messiah who would come and would reign over a kingdom from Jerusalem that would spread across the entire earth. I mean, these were the the thousand-year millennial kingdom are the culmination, or is the culmination of all the promises God gave to Israel, which we become a part of when we give our heart to Christ because we become spiritual Jews grafted in to those same promises that God gave to the patriarchs. You can read about that in Romans 11. But the millennial kingdom is still part of time. Now, as we move from chapter 20, which focuses on the millennial kingdom, into chapter 21, we move from time into eternity. By this point, all of human redemptive history is completed. The millennial kingdom is over with. Satan and all the wicked unbelievers have been judged and cast into the lake of fire, All that remains is eternity. When I say all that remains for us, that's everything we've been waiting for, basically. So it's quite a time. But I want you to realize that by the time we get to chapter 21, every trace of sin, along with its curse, every ounce of depravity and defilement has now been removed, not only from the earth, but from the entire universe, as we're going to see. And everything, starting from this point, is going to be made brand new. John said, Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Some people believe that what's in view here is that God is going to renovate the old heavens and the old earth. But actually, I believe what's really going on here is God's going to make something brand new. He's going to do a, a whole new thing. Uh, he's going to not going to renovate the old. He is going to recreate something brand new. Turn to Isaiah 65. And I want to look at verses 17 and 18. There's three classic passages on this subject of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17 and 18. Isaiah 66, verse 22. And 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter, I should say, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. We'll look at 
uh, at two of those. The first one being Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. God said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Listen. And the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Now, I believe that what is being said here is that by the time we enter into the eternal state, God is going to wipe away from our memory banks this life. That doesn't mean we're going to forget each other. It's not going to mean that we're going to forget what Jesus did on the cross for us. But I don't know how heaven could be heaven if we still remember all the people that we love that didn't make it. And so God in His mercy, I believe, is going to wipe our memory banks clean. He's going to just wipe it clean. And this former life will no longer be remembered nor come to mind. Now, I know right now that's a hard thing to think about. But believe me, when God does it, you're going to appreciate it. But what I really want to focus in here, on these, in these two verses, there are three words I want to show you. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. The Hebrew word for create here is the word bara. And the Hebrew word bara means to bring into existence something out of nothing. Only God can bara. We can be creative. And there are other Hebrew words that, uh, that talk about uh, creating things in the sense of assembling existing materials. Some of you are very creative. But you don't call into existence something out of nothing and then build something. You take existing materials, bring them together, and make something neat. Only God can bara. And that's why I believe this is going to be a whole new thing. This present heavens and earth are not some kind of gigantic fixer-upper that God is going to rehab. At one point, He's going to vaporize the whole deal. And He's going to start from scratch. He's going to create out of nothing something brand new. Turn to 2 Peter 3. Because Peter spoke about this. How is God going to do it? Well, I think we get a little insight into how He's going to do it right here in 2 Peter 3. But, but let's pick it up in verse 10. You can read the whole chapter, very fascinating, and deals with the end times and the new order, the eternal state, and so on. But in 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 10, Peter said, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, there are three words here that I want to point out. One is the word melt in verse 10. The second is the word dissolved in verse 11. And the third word is dissolved in verse 12. All three of those words are the Greek word luo. And the Greek word luo could be translated to loose or untie. To loose or untie. It brings us to mind something that Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said, For by Him, Jesus Christ, 
all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and what? Invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or, or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him or by him all things consist. The Greek word there literally means are held together. When Paul said that all things were created by him, whether visible or invisible, we could uh, apply what he's saying to the atom, right? Because the atom is the building block of all matter, correct? And the atom is invisible to the human eye, and yet God has created it, and God has used it to build everything in the material universe from. Now, the interesting thing about the atom, it's made up of three main components. The nucleus contains neutrons and protons, and then orbiting the nucleus are one or more electrons. We know that electrons are negatively charged particles. But in the nucleus, you have neutrons, which are neutral, and protons. Protons are positively charged particles. Now, Coulomb's law of electricity says, very simply, that likes repel and opposites attract. We've all done this with magnets, right? You've had the horseshoe magnet. You, you line up the positive side with the positive and the negative with the negative, and it wants to push away, right? If you line up... The negative with the positive, positive with the negative, it wants to pull together. The question that has baffled scientists for years, and they really have not come up with a, an explanation yet, is if the nucleus of an atom contains protons, and protons are positively charged particles, why aren't they pushing each other apart and splitting the atom? What, 40, 50 years ago now, 50 years ago? Scientists discovered that if you bombard the nucleus of an atom with slow-moving neutrons, you could disrupt it. You could cause the protons to do what they should have be doing naturally and begin to repel, and you could split the atom. And we know that when you split an atom, as small as it is, an incredible amount of energy is released, right? They tell me that the amount of nuclear or atomic material used on the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, I believe, was only about the size of a dime. There's a lot of power in an atom. But as powerful as an atom is, and that's what uh, atomic fission is when you, you know, split the atom, as powerful as that is, obviously something is holding it together that is even more powerful still. Scientists don't know what it is. They, they've come up with all kinds of explanations, but why the protons in the atom's nucleus are not doing what they should be doing and repelling each other and causing... You know, the atoms should be dividing all over the place or splitting. They don't know. But we know. The Bible says that in him all things are being held together. He holds all things together by the word of his power, the Bible says. I believe what Peter is telling us is that at one point God's going to let go. And everything, all the atoms in the entire universe are going to do what they should have been doing already. And they're going to split. Can you imagine an atomic explosion the size of the entire universe, everything would be vaporized. All the elements would melt with fervent heat. Everything would be dissolved in an instant. And I think that that's exactly what God is saying here, that God is going to at one point, as Jesus Christ is holding all things together by the word of his power, Jesus is just going to let go. How powerful is our God? 
that it takes more power to hold the atom together than is involved in that atom, and yet he holds it all together by the word of his power. But at one point, I believe he is going to open his hand, you might say, and everything is going to be vaporized in preparation to him recreating everything from scratch. Now, still in verse 1, John said, I saw a new what? Heaven. In Scripture, there are three heavens mentioned. First is the atmospheric heaven that surrounds the earth, you know, consisting of the air we breathe, the place where birds fly, you know, that heaven. The second heaven is outer space or planetary heaven where the sun, moon, stars, and all the celestial bodies are. But the third heaven is what the Bible also calls the heaven of heavens or the dwelling place of God himself. Heaven is not a concept. It's not some metaphor. It's a real place. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.